So maybe you have that friend or relative that, you know, you're on the phone and you're having that conversation and they just don't know when to stop talking. And, and you're, you're there and you're sort of trying to hang out. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, good. Appreciate that. And they seem to keep piling up those last minute things to say, just sort of bombarding you with thing after thing. And as First Thessalonians ends, Paul seems to behave a bit like that friend or relative that doesn't just know when to stop. The difference, though, here's the big thing. The big difference is that Paul's every little line was of crucial importance by the inspiration of the Spirit. And so, as we sort of come into this last chain of directions, instructions that Paul gives to us, we should probably try to catch up. So in this letter, we've seen Paul recount how he needed to know that the new Christians in Thessalonica were enduring well in faith. They were likely coming under oppression in their hometown. And we read that he sent Timothy, finally, when he could endure it no more, to check on them. And Timothy came back with this good report of their faith. And then we saw how Paul turned to address some issues that had caused concern among them about the day of the Lord, when Christ will climactically come back, end history, install his kingdom in full. And in each one of those sections, we saw how Paul drew together the themes of the doctrine of election, the imitation of godly examples, and the return of Christ to send words of hope, spend the emphasis, send words of hope to believers enduring oppression. And here now we come to the end of this letter and we find Paul's array of last minute exhortations. And there, this might appear to be a bit like a shotgun blast, just covering a massive amount of area. And in fact, Paul does that. He covers a massive amount of material here. And he, what he, we do see though, is this may not be quite as disjointed as it might first appear. He gathers together some lingering threads of things he needed to say and ties them up in one place. And they're actually fairly intrinsically linked to the themes that we've seen run throughout this epistle when we think about it. And what we can do here to get a better handle on things is that we can break this passage into roughly three distinct sections. So the first one we think about verses 12 to 13, are about church leadership, which, of course, if if you remind yourself of the theme, has obvious connections to imitating godly examples. Church leaders are our proximate, even if we don't have the apostles, even in Thessalonica when they were alive, we've got church leaders as the godly examples we should imitate. Then, verses 14 to 22, Paul outlined some responsibilities that belong to the Christian life. And then verses 23 to 28 contain Paul's prayerful benediction and last exhortations. And so the uniting theme, this is not my main point, so this will be slightly longer. Um, but this is, I do want to sort of summarize a running theme here that God, the God 
who has elected and called us to salvation will sanctify us, make us godlier, and will use the appointed ministry of the church to do that. So, so the emphasis is on God who is sovereign and brought us to himself will work these items of sanctification in us by using his appointed means of grace. And so we can bring that in a little bit tighter if we think about our main point. We should pursue the Lord for holiness by participating in the church, trusting him to work that in us for Christ's return. We should pursue the Lord for holiness by by participating in the church, trusting him to work that in us, that holiness in us for Christ's return. We'll think about this in three points corresponding to those three sections, roughly supervision, spiritual callings, and sanctification. So I don't have three P's in a poem, but I have three S's and a sonnet. I don't have a sonnet, uh, but we'll have three S's. So supervision, let's dive into this first one. And my emphasis here on the role of the church as God's tool for bringing about our sanctification may not be obvious from an initial reading of this passage, but that's the first thing I, I want to address to try to make that obvious. So if you turn your attention to verses 12, 13 with me. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and we ask you to esteem them very highly in love. Notice that. In love. Because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And so, I'm going to make the case, I don't think there will be much dispute, that these verses are about our relationship to the elders of our church. And we find three descriptions of what, three descriptions of what the elders do. Laboring, being over us, and admonishing us. It's important that Paul categorize these leaders, I think, in terms of their activity, their work, not in terms of their social or financial status. We respect these people, not because of things the world notices about them or or likes, but because of what they do in the church. Now, let's look at how this is about elders. So Paul elsewhere described elders with an emphasis on their labor. And that's key here. So 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul in 1 Timothy explicitly referred to the elders as laborers. And in our 1 Thessalonians passage, use that same terminology about laborers or elders in Thessalonica. And Paul described these laborers, the elders, with two other terms as well. They are over us in the Lord and they admonish us. So the, the specific connotations we should, we should try to latch on to being over us entail leadership and management so that that same word for being over us was in that first timothy 5 verse in saying let the elders who rule well now here's the here's the point of that 
why we, we should keep track of that. Because Paul linked ruling, so this being over us, to teaching in First Timothy, which indicates that this ruling has implications for overseeing us doctrinally. So teaching us. But, but when Paul used that word again in First Timothy 3, it also had to do with moral oversight. And so that oversight of doctrinal and ethical concerns in the church is why Paul, lastly here, described the elders as those who admonish us. So they have this job to make sure our doctrine and ethics are correct and they don't simply govern us by establishing theological and moral principles, but also by admonishing us to keep those principles, addressing us to direct us back to them. And so we all need to commit to the doctrines and ethics of this church, which our elders uphold for us and defend. Now, drawing this together for a bit more practical relevance, uh, this work, this work described here, as Paul said in verse 13, that's the reason why that we should highly esteem our elders. They're worthy of honor. Some of double honor if they rule and preach well. And so we should give them due respect as those whom God has appointed to office. And the reason that Paul said we need to respect it. So he's making this point about needing to respect our leaders. And he did so right before he listed these Christian obligations. Why do you think he would do that? Because of this imitation of godly examples theme. He emphasized throughout the first three chapters that we need to imitate godly examples. And so there are, in fact, two applications here, right? If we think about this list connected to our leaders. One, one for our elders themselves And that the standards set in the following list that we're about to think about are things of which our officers need to live as examples. So the following verses, therefore, call elders to live exemplary lives of these things. And then second, for for the rest of us, there's also a direct application here that we need to live respectfully, highly esteeming, the people who are on, the men who are on our session, especially, specifically, rather, listening to and emulating them in the way that they model these facets of Christian living. The second, I mean, I think that this is fascinating, that the second half of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves, it seems to be the anticipated result of respecting our leaders and accepting their admonitions. Which makes us sort of ask the question, you know, if we, if we feel like there's divisions in churches, I don't really think that's a problem here as far as I know. But when it, if it ever does become something, if we know friends, family, who say, there's so much division in our church. Well, you respect your church leaders? Are you striving to emulate what they do? Or are you sort of saying, I don't really like them either? Because the expected result, it seems here in this passage, 
of admiring our leaders for what they do for us in the church, is that will bring about peace. So, but let's think about another aspect of, of this instruction that may not be immediately obvious about, so this, this point about leaders being over us in the, in the Lord. We should remember, this is likely Paul's first inspired letter, right? Maybe second if Galatians is first, but it's early. And the thing that we see here is that Paul knew the church already had a formal structure of church leadership. And th- this actually is important. This this is crucial and I think fascinating. Because some people claim that sort of the formal structures of church leadership, having elders and that sort of thing, were, were added later. After the earlier phases of the ancient church fizzled out when they had been guided by the Spirit's less formal guidance. And so we then we needed some people to step in. But actually what we've seen here, there's a reason for bringing in First Timothy right at the start, is that Paul's view in his earliest letter matched his view of church government in one of his latest letters. Now, you know, we looked earlier in the series about how this letter fit into the book of Acts. So we shouldn't really be surprised by this since Acts 15, which notes the presence of formal eldership, it did that well before Paul came to Thessalonica in Acts 17. But what it tells us is God has always had a pretty specific plan for how to run his church. And he's revealed it to his church from the very beginning of the New Testament period. And what we see is that God gave the church supervision to focus us in the right doctrinal and ethical directions. And that brings us to our second point. Spiritual callings. So, the passage, this, this set of verses open describing spiritual leadership. And then in verses 14 to 22, we find a list of Christian obligations, which our elders should be an imitatable example of those things. But now we need to give some thought to that list itself, which describes our spiritual callings that apply to all Christians in common. And so if you will, turn your, let's, let's read the first set or first section of exhortations in verses 14 to 18. Paul writes, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so most of these are pretty straightforward. Now they're... Now, here's the issue, though. They may be simple, but that doesn't mean they're easy. That's that's different. We understand these things, but that doesn't mean that they're easy for us to do. But we should note, though, 
importantly, that this, in this string of things, Paul ends with the point that these items of sanctification are God's will for us. Now, perhaps you know where I'm going, because we remember, don't we, Paul's assertion in chapter 4, verse 3, that for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so Paul's essentially repeating that point here, that God's will for our lives isn't obscure, but it's been told to us. We don't have to work hard to discern what God's will is. He's told us, even if it's difficult for us to do, we know what it is. And this list contains the basic tenets of Christian living. And perhaps... We can think of other things that tie together from this letter in this section as well. So you might recall how Paul highlighted in chapter 4, verse 11, our need to work with our hands, meaning we need to do our own work. And he repeated that here in another form, saying Christians must admonish the idol. And here, I mean, here's the, the tough part. That, I mean, I don't know how many people this actually addresses right at the mark, but we have to remember that Christians cannot be lazy people. We should care. We should really deeply care about being contributing members of society. It's part of what we're meant to do. We were made to work. And we know that as people remade in God's image, that we're called back to do work again. Not to earn God's love, but because we need to express God's love to our neighbors. And further, and we see sort of the way we hash that out, we should encourage and help those who are struggling. And even when it takes a long time, we shouldn't be impatient to those who keep struggling for long periods and need ongoing encouragement. And we who have received so much from God should be thankful in all circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean we necessarily have to be thankful for all circumstances. And I think Paul's being precise here. But we do need to be thankful in all circumstances. And we should rejoice because no matter where we are, learning to be content in all things, because we at least know that we've received irrevocable salvation. And God will put all things right in the end. And that, resting in that, going back to that promise, that's what helps us be good to everyone. And so those are sort of the general commendations that pertain to us in common life. And then we get to the controversial and juicy ones in the next section. So if you look at verses 19 to 22 with me, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every appearance form of evil. So as you know, Reverend Pearson and I try to slog through lots of reading about these texts before we come up here to preach them. We want to try to make sure we know what we're talking about. Now, what's interesting on this set of verses is that I think almost every commentator 
about this passage jump directly to the issue of charismatic gifts. Meaning, so if, if you're not in the loop on that one, and that's okay, it's maybe better. But if you're not in the loop on that one, we're talking about whether or not people can still make prophecies, exercise the gift of healing, and speak in tongues, that sort of thing, miraculous gifts. And so the writers on this passage claim that these verses indicate that some Thessalonians suppressed spiritual gifts during the worship service. That's that's the argument. Is Paul saying this because some people wanted to push the use of spiritual gifts out of times of worship? But let let me put it to you. Does Paul say anything about spiritual gifts per se using them inside or outside of corporate worship here is there is there anything to sort of point us that this is about that issue because and and where this hits the the rubber hits the road on this is those who support sort of the continuing use of of miraculous gifts have used verse 19 to accuse those of us who think we no longer can use, no longer receive miraculous gifts, they they appeal to this to say we are quenching the Spirit and that we sort of have lifeless worship where we don't experience God. And, I mean, I just don't think that this is the best, that is the best understanding of what Paul said here and that it takes a modern debate and it reads it back into this passage that had very little to do with spiritual gifts. I mean, just think with me for a second. Uh, you know, that command, do not quench the Spirit, does that immediately suggest anything about miraculous gifts? If you just had that, does it suggest charismatic events? Unless we are assuming it? So think of, think of that Ephesians passage that we read. If you're wondering why we had Ephesians 5 read, now we come back to that. And so we're thinking about verses 18 to 21 there. Paul wrote, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so what Paul said there is he contrasted drunkenness to being filled with the Spirit and sort of people who who argue that we should continue to exercise miraculous gifts, often have appealed to that section of as well, about we should be filled with the Spirit. And there are manifestations of that. And, and in that capacity, I absolutely agree. But it, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us what those manifestations are. Addressing each other in song, always being thankful, and to, and submitting to one another. Which is not all that out of the ordinary, really, if we think about it. I mean, that's just normal corporate worship, thankfulness, and not being prideful. That's what 
the rich manifestations of the Holy Spirit look like. And so, I think we should take that back to our passage for tonight. But we do have to think about verse 20 and that issue of not not despising prophecies. And that is really why this passage stirs so much discussion over these gifts. But I'd, I'd like to suggest to you, and hope that you might come to agree with me, that instead of leaping to the issue of charismatic gifts, we should remember the broader context of what Paul had been saying in this book. Has Paul not made several prophecies about Christ's return? And in fact, just wrote in the last few passages we've studied an extended prophecy about what the second coming of Christ will be like in chapter 4, 13 to 5, chapter 5, verse 11. And did we not also see that thinking about the end of history had caused some real worries for the Thessalonians? And so, what I would put to you is that instead of assuming that this is an affirmation of miraculous gifts even for today, we should see that grounded in in a broader reading of this book, that Paul meant that even though thinking about prophecies, biblical prophecies, had caused concerns, Christians still shouldn't despise them, even though they can cause worry if not properly understood. Instead of despising them, we should test or examine them to see if they square with biblical testimony. So we need to, Paul says, reflect on biblical prophecy. Because all of Scripture is profitable for God's people. Genuinely. And we should think about Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. And this commitment to biblical prophecies is going to be one of the ways that we hold fast to what is good. Thinking through these things carefully and understanding Scripture in light of Scripture. Now, modern applications of of this would actually then not be that different than it would be for the Thessalonians. We also, just like Paul exhorted them to do, we should prize, hold in high esteem, biblical prophecies. I mean, we do know. I mean, it's not going to stop. People are going to misuse biblical prophecies. But... By intention or mistake, it's going to happen. And some people may concoct fanciful stories about the end of the world, even ones that involve Jesus. And these have, throughout the history of the church, called pro- caused problems for God's people. And we should still not despise biblical prophecies. We should think well about all texts of Scripture. Everything God inspired, including things about Christ's return, properly understood, is good for us and will bring us hope. We should also, however, extend our application a little bit further than just these verses about not quenching the Spirit to all of verses 14 to 22. Because we need to keep in mind that Paul wrote these directions connected to that command about church leaders. 
And so as we've pointed out already that elders should be our examples that we can imitate in these things. <clears throat> uh, so these things, particularly last bits about teaching and prophetic biblical material, are supposed to take place under the supervision of our leaders. So the application to remember here as well is that these fruits of sanctification take place under the guidance of our elders, which means as well that these things are primarily fruits of what God does in us in corporate worship. That's why it's really important to gather here. Use the Lord's day to come together with God's people, hear from his word, sing together. Because as these things seem daunting, I certainly don't think I'm going to get this right this week. But God can work this in us because he's promised to do so through his means of grace. So our spiritual callings are to attend to the matters of sanctification, which includes even learning about biblical, difficult biblical material. And that brings us to our third point, sanctification. Okay, so let's, let's try to catch back up. So in the first point, Paul's first exhortation was to regard our elders as highly esteemed. And we saw how this means that even from the earliest New Testament times, the church had structured governance. And then in the second point, we considered several areas where our leaders are supposed to admonish us, which, which doesn't always mean correction. But it does require earnest urging and warning. And we've been getting a lot of that in really high quality in the Sermon on the Mount. We thought about some of those basic tenets of the Christian life, like continual prayer, like thanksgiving, and we also thought about what this passage teaches us about how the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in our lives. And so now we need to turn to think about this closing prayer for the Thessalonians, as well as those final last instructions. So let's look at verses 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Okay, so here's a here's a little bit about so drawing this back to our time together in worship. If you ever wonder why our services end with a with a benediction, well passages like this tell us why. So since we hold to, as as Presbyterians, we hold that we're supposed to do in worship only the things that God commands us to do in the in the Bible. So we take the things that we do as part of this service, the necessary components of worship from Scripture itself. And here in these verses, we find a a prescribed way, a model from the Bible for how to give closing blessings to God's people. And this particular blessing is a prayer that God will sanctify the readers completely. So, So bring them to complete conformity to godliness for Christ's return. And we need to know God's role 
So, so the part that God plays in sanctifying us. Because I think that is a, a question that comes up. As soon as we start thinking about sanctification, growing in godliness, we're asking, what does God do and what do I need to do? I think one of the things that happens is that there's often an assumption that God justifies us as a complete act of grace, and then afterwards sort of becomes up to us to play our part. Before we go on, certainly, as we've already seen throughout this letter and this passage, we have obligations to be faithful in the Christian life. There's no doubt about that. But we should take note here that it's not our own cooperation with God that makes us more holy, that grows us in godliness. It is, in fact, as Paul prayed, that God himself would do this work of sanctification in us. So now, if you think about I know that we've got this, I mean, we've got a WhatsApp working through the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I don't know what other churches are doing, but that's got to be one of the cool programs we've got going on here. Uh, think about, for those of you who have learned this, and for those of you who haven't, here's motivation to go learn it. Question 35 of our Shorter Catechism. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. So notice that. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, it should not shock you, now that we've read this verse, that this was a proof text for Shorter Catechism 35. Paul did say here that God is the one who will sanctify. God does the work of grace in us. How exciting is that? Even the obligations that we have to do, promising He will be right there in them. And further, Paul's words here, in your whole spirit and soul and body, are meant to emphasize that God will work this sanctification in every little aspect of you or in the whole person. Paul asserted that he knew, he was confident that God would bring this work to completion at Christ's return. Not because of you. I mean, did you notice that? You are not the reason that God will sanctify you. But because God is faithful. God is faithful to do what he will do. And he will fulfill this work. We should think here, should we not, of Philippians 1.6, that I'm sure of this, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus? Because Paul knows, and you should know, that God won't abandon his people and not leave them in their sins. We, we can trust, we can know, That God will be at work to continue to save us from the power of sin. So God certainly definitively breaks the penalty, does away, it's done, we're justified, saved from the penalty of sin. But God will continue to save us from the power of sin, freeing you from its rule in your life. 
And here's the thing. Because we know that, we should seek the face of God for holiness. Pursue. When you wake up and you say, I don't know how I can keep this list. Right? You can't. Run to God. Beg Him. Whatever's hardest on this list for you, when you wake up to, before you go to bed tonight, and when you wake up in the morning, God, work this in me. You promised you would. Help me. And we should pray for our fellow Christians. Verse 25. We should keep each other, not just our own struggles in this, but pray for our brothers and sisters as they struggle. Pray for our leaders that they would be holy and would be good examples for us to respect and follow. And also, we should be glad to see one another. It's a simple point, but it's an important point. Verse 26, we should greet one another affectionately. Now, although our culture does not likely welcome kissing as the expression, and I should, I mean, let's, let's bring it to our younger men. It says kiss the brothers, so it's not an excuse to try to kiss the ladies of the church. And, I mean, here's sort of the capstone. We should be committed to the public reading and proclamation of Holy Scripture, verse 27. We are bound. I mean, do, do you see how strongly he puts, I put you under oath to read this letter. And so we are bound as the church of Christ to place God's holy word at the center of our worship. And the scripture itself enjoins that upon us. Not, it's not a preference. We don't get to decide if we like it that the Bible's at the center of our worship. It is a compulsion. If you want to follow God, the Bible is at the center of our worship. We're under oath. And we can't forget though, the big banner over all the top of this is that all these exhortations are wrapped up under that expectant prayer about Christ's return. Paul wrote, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. And we still... We do still wait for our Lord Jesus to return. And we can wait for that with hope. We can hope for his return because then he will come back and right all wrongs and complete our salvation. Make us completely free of sin in penalty and in power. And make us completely conform to him. And we can be hopeful for that. That at that day of the Lord, when so many will see his wrath, which is why we need to turn to Christ now, we can trust as God's people, and let me urge you, if you've not, to trust in Christ for exactly this reason. Because we can trust that Christ paid the death penalty that we owe and wash away our sins. And Christ walked the earth, not just as preparation for the cross, but to fill the law. Jesus Christ earned heaven for you. 
kept every jot and tittle so that you belong in heaven if you trust in him. He has made us citizens of his kingdom, and when he returns, he will bring with him that kingdom that is our home. Let's pray.